before week. He's going to be with us next Sunday morning and obviously the following Sunday. Uh, So John chapter 5, John, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gethsemane, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out, your, put out into deeper water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. As I was reading that, I was thinking of Peter was kneeling in the bottom of the boat with the fish all around. What a picture. That day for Peter, that moment for Simon, and he obviously got a new name, Peter, as, as with the story goes along. Simon turned out to be quite a day. Started off pretty ropey, pretty nondescript, pretty frustrating, a little bit curious, crowds gathering, itinerant teacher gathering. But by the end of the day, a day that I'm sure he'd never forget. A turning point. Because Jesus entered in. Turning point. For me, in my story, uh, my turning point was on the 10th of November, 1991. For the astute in maths, I was 19. You can calculate to your heart's content. It's like countdown now with uh, Carol Vorderman and the maths. You can do all sorts of things with those numbers. But on the 10th of November, 1991, that was a day on the kind of between the Saturday and the Sunday that that my life turned around, I became a follower of Jesus. Because up to that point, I had been really hostile. I had been uh, uh, not only ambivalent, actively against Jesus. Not initially as a, as a, a small boy. Uh, I, my family were kind of um, occasional churchgoers, but British, therefore Christian, if you know what I mean. You know, they ticked that box on forms, Church of England, and uh, paid their taxes and, uh, you know, kind of 
knew what's right and wrong. And uh, occasionally we would go to a service, we'd sit on the hard pews and and I would kind of look around and think, this is all very, very odd. And I remember being probably about eight and having a real tantrum, uh, as only eight-year-olds can do, when we were told we had to go to the carols by candlelight service. And I thought, oh, it's so dull. The best thing was watching the wax drip on the old lady who didn't notice. Sorry? I was very mean. My brother snuck his Walkman in, had one earphone in. Remember Walkmans? Till the battery went down and the tape started playing slowly. It's all good that all the kids have gone out. They don't understand anything. Sorry, Abby, you don't understand this, do you, on the front row? <laughs> or Joe. And it got through secondary school. I, was, uh, I became, uh, science is one of the things I really love, particularly biology. Uh, I became more and more involved in uh, loving science and all those things. And, uh, and there were a few Christians around in, in school, particularly in the sixth form. And they were nice. I guess they were nice and they were kind. But they, they, they never really talked about Jesus. And if they did, I had a dozen and one arguments with them. And quite compelling, actually. I think a couple of them, I don't think they gave up believing, but I think I made them stumble along. I regret that now, obviously. And I became adamant that the things of Jesus were outdated, would be better if we got rid of, jettisoned, that we'd got to a new place of thinking, didn't need to have these props, these supports, these myths, these methods of control. Just look at all the mistakes and the things you could lay at the the door of Christianity and say, let's just move on from that. It's actually more bad than good. And I was really set in that. I was also really kind of fairly hard-hearted. It was around the time... um, uh, Around the time of... um, of Live Aid, Band-Aid, not plasters, but, you know, the, um, that big concert that happened. Because there was this huge famine going on in East Africa. And Brian Hanrahan, I don't know if you remember him, reporting with distended stomachs of Ethiopian and Somalian children just decimated across the whole of, of that horn of Africa, the east of Africa. And I was kind of like, on one sense, that those are really shocking pictures. But on another sense, I was really unmoved by it. There are all sorts of things that I wouldn't voice because, it, you know, we'd get in trouble and people say, how cold-hearted. But there was a kind of sense of, well, we're overpopulated, that there's too much going on in that, you know, that, that, you know with ecological systems and all that, thinking, well, uh, it's overpopulated, deforestation, et cetera, et cetera. I don't rejoice in that. That's just how I thought. Anyway, I went to university, was studying marine biology, and uh, got to my second year. And as it happened, where I was staying, um, I was in the Hall of Residence. I was the entertainments officer. I was a DJ. I tell this to the youth, and they look at me aghast. <laughs> you were a DJ? You did? And I was like, yeah. There's a kind of mixture of that was so cool, and he must be telling us a lie. 
what did you wear? What was your name? They said. I said, it was Edward still. But uh, they were great parties. It was amazing. And um, happened to be, as I was doing that, some, uh, there was a Christian that moved onto my, on the corridor that I lived. And, and I, the first reason, well, I, I knew he was a Christian because a mate of his and mine, who was in my year, had said, oh, gosh, watch out. He's a rave, rabid Christian. And I was like, and I remember saying to this guy, I said, we'd soon sort that out. And the reason I knew that he was a Christian, he could not only got up on a Sunday morning and went to church, and the rest of us were just light, enjoying our Sunday morning lying, kind of uh, having been out quite late on Saturday nights. And also, um, as we kind of got to know each other and hung out, I realized that he'd got this Bible. Um, he was a bit of a student. It was one of those bigger ones with notes in. And it kept moving around his room, and it wasn't just a big coffee coaster. It was that I knew that he was reading it. And he was training to be a, a medic, he was a doctor, and uh, I couldn't quite work out why this really smart guy, who was kind of good fun a lot, and met some other Christians, and they were very different to the ones at school, that why would they would believe this nonsense, and not only believe it, live it out, and want to talk about it. And that catalyzed, that started about um, uh, six to eight weeks, probably two months of of really deep arguments, I would give it my best shot to prove him wrong. And he and others that I happen to be arguing with give it their best shot to, to say, you're wrong. You know, like students do. And they became more and more adamant that they were wrong. And yet there was one thing in amongst all of this that kind of I couldn't get out of my mind. It was the fact that if, um, if the two, well, it's kind of what, what happened to the body of Jesus? What happened? Because it all hangs there. Does Jesus rise or does, did he not? Did he stay dead or did he rise again? Was the tomb empty? And I was adamant this was untrue, that, the, that everything about Christianity was, was, was nonsensical and, uh, and, and uh, should be kind of jettisoned. But there was that just one thing. And I realized, I just kind of caught myself thinking, well, I can't, at the moment, find a better explanation than these Christians are arguing. But I, w- I wouldn't let on that I was giving a bit of ground there. Because pride's like that. When you want to win an argument, you don't give ground, do you? Now, uh, there was there were some other people involved. There was a, a guy, I'm, I'm, I'll speed up in a minute. There was, uh, I don't know if I've ever told you most of you this story. I thought you might like this. We hear about baptismal stories. There was this one guy called John, and John is a brilliant pianist, but he was quite short and he was painfully shy. So much so that um, he was he was in my first year, lived along the corridor. I think there were only twice in the year that I said I kind of said hi to John. I wasn't nasty to him, but he was just so timid. It was painfully awkward. This guy called John. And he lived at the end of my car and we'd say, and he would kind of like put his head down and, and kind of, hi, and you know, we never ever spoke. And he stayed in uh, to the Hall of Residence with me, or not with me, but with on, uh, he was actually one of the CU leaders. And I remember sitting in the, in the, the common room before dinner, about, dinner was 6.30, uh, we at 6 o'clock, I was sitting there kind of, I don't know if it was home and away or news at 6, I can't remember the detail of that, but we were sitting just watching television. And this was kind of uh, mid-October, 
And uh, we were on seats a bit like out there. And I sat down. I was kind of like a bit tired from the day. And I was suddenly aware John was sitting two seats away on the edge of it, looking a bit anxious. And I kind of looked at her and said, oh, hi, John, what do you want? And he was kind of, and he had this paper. He was a bit, he was shaking. And he said, this is for you. Gave me this piece of paper and shot off. I was like, looked at it, and it happened to be an invitation to the Christian Union house party. Now, the reason he'd given it to me was we'd got to this place in an argument, arguments to say, well, you can't really know if it's false or true unless you try it, was what the Christians were saying to me. And I kind of thought, mm, I suppose so. I didn't want to go to church, but I thought they, they said that this thing, this house party, this Christian Union weekend was going to be all right. It was in a castle. They didn't tell me it had no heating. It was in the middle of nowhere, so I couldn't escape. But I, uh, <laughs> I took this piece of paper and thought, I know, I'll, I'll go. And then I can say, look, I've tried it, and it's still a load of rubbish. So I ate my dinner. I discovered a couple of weeks later that John had given it to the wrong person. <laughs> and he was too shy to come and ask for it back. And he was astonished that and my, all my Christian friends there, I discovered afterwards, were praying for me. And they were just blown away that I'd kind of agreed to come to this thing. Anyway, on that Christian Union house party, it was awful. It was a nightmare. 140 student Christians giving it all this for Jesus. And me going, what am I doing here? They're all mad. My Christian friends didn't want to pressure me and didn't want to kind of over, kind of like, you know, persuade me. So they just left me alone. And all the others didn't know who I was, so they left me alone. So I just thought, this is rubbish. I hated it. And it was freezing cold. I was the only warm one because I did diving and I got my diving undersuit on. It's like this big onesie baby grow thing that you put under dry suits. And I was kind of toasty at night. Everyone, you could see your breath, even with the one fire on it. It's bitter. But things came together. What made the turning point for me was that I, I, I had this realization that the tomb was empty. And there's... Kind of lots of thoughts about why it was empty, of who, you know, where did the body go? Did they get the wrong tomb? Had the Romans taken it? Had the disciples taken it? Had the, you know, the witnesses got confused? All those kind of things. Did Jesus just faint? Did Jesus not really die on the cross? All these things. And I thought them through and I reflected on them. It wasn't necessarily, you know, breaking new ground, but I realized that the only rational, the only reasonable, astonishing outcome to that was he rose. And something amazing happened that I can't always, I can't really put it into words, but in that realization, in that weekend, and it wasn't that I was jumping in both feet, giving it all that, I was there really to say, oh, well, I've tried it and I'm going to reject it. But the Lord changed my heart. That I remember waking up on the Sunday morning, just feeling totally different. I wanted to still get out of that place because I was had enough of it, to be honest. But there was there was something had changed. My life was turned around. Well, how did I know that? Because I was still arguing with my friends when I got home, and my heart, my spirit, was saying, "You don't believe that anymore." And I found myself playing catch up with my mouth, going, "Oh no, I don't." 
I found myself suddenly, just the, my compassion and my care and my, my love for other people had totally transformed. That whereas it had been a bit harsh and cold, and, and the reason I told you about the Ethiopian kind of band-aid thing, live aid, was because suddenly it mattered to me. And I just encountered this wonderful joy. The Holy Spirit had filled me, and I, was, I had this most goofy smile for four days. I remember going on the Monday morning to a seminar on sharks and sitting through the seminar with my lecturer and about five other students with this, this ridiculous face on. I think the lecturer thought I was high. I thought I'd had a crazy weekend, and I had in one sense. He's like, are you all right? I said, I'm brilliant. And from that moment, I knew my life had changed. That where I had been dead set against Jesus, I now wanted to follow him. I wanted to know him more. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to walk in his ways. I wanted to see the things of Jesus come about in my own life and round about. That day, 10th of November 1991, was a turning point. I'm so, so thankful for that moment. Really, really am. See, that's what God does. He, he comes along. Jesus comes along into every person. I believe it's every person on this planet who's ever lived. There comes those moments where there are opportunities for turning points. That Jesus, and it's the nature of God, loves to reveal himself. He's a self-revealing God. He is in his nature desiring that we should know him, really and truly know him, know him by name, know him by character, have the joy of walking with him. It began in the garden where they walked in the cool of the day and it got broken and fractured and people turned their face away. And again and again we do that, but always the initiative, always the intention, always the involvement of God to say, know me, I'm here. Waiting to be found. Will you turn back? Isn't that amazing? For Peter, Simon, that day involved Jesus coming uh, down from uh, the mountainside and coming to the beach and there's a crowd and, and they're kind of really curious to hear about this new teacher on the block, Jesus. He said stuff that was radical and, uh, and people were really kind of blown away by it. And... Um, he taught, and Peter's kind of sitting on the side, Simon's sitting on the side, and he's cleaning his nets, and he's probably a bit tired and a bit fed up, because they've, they've been at work all night, and, and now there's all these people kind of crowding in, and can't they just, haven't they got homes to be at? And Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, can I borrow your boat? I mean, remarkably, Simon says, okay. Maybe Simon prefers being on the water. He gets, they get into the boat. They push off a little bit from shore. I'm told that these boats are between 25 and 30 feet long. So there's Simon on one end. Jesus teaching, talking. Simon listening in, hearing, watching. And then, and then after a, a little while, Jesus kind of says uh, to, to Simon, uh, put out into deep water. Let's go a little bit further out. Let down your nets for a catch. Now, it's, it's pretty astonishing. We know the story, we read it, that they put out and suddenly there's fish galore. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where there's like an abundance of fish. Anyone fished here? I was a marine biologist, so I did loads of fishing 
It's much more effective with a trawler than a line, I tell you that. Um, catch more. It's a little bit easier. But I remember being uh, once on summer holidays, and, um, and we were in North Wales, and, and one evening we were by the shore, and all of a sudden we suddenly aware there were just reams and reams of fish, white bait, in the sea. And we didn't really know why, but it was to do with the current and probably the mackerel were chasing them because the mackerel ate them, I discovered. But the, they, were, they were, had kind of clumped this huge shoal of white bait were right by the shore. We were kind of, we were, I was probably about 16, 17, don't endorse this now, but we'd brought down a cool box full of beers to the beach, summer holiday. We emptied the beers out, got the cool box, and we were like scooping these white bait out of the sea. And it was overflowing with white bait. We went into a white bait catching frenzy. And we went, I remember we, got, we found some plastic bags. We carried these things back home. We said, we've got white bait. There were hundreds of these things. I have to say, my mum wasn't like, well, what are we going to do for them? You know, they kind of taste all right for a little bit, don't they? But there were far too many. An abundance suddenly. What's amazing that Peter, Simon, hadn't got so focused on the fish. He's a fisherman. That's his job, isn't it? <gasps> fish! Calls his, his mates out. The boat's sinking. Come on, fish, fish. That actually Simon is aware that, of why there's so many fish. He's not caught up just in that moment. I just want us to, to think just about a couple of the reactions that that we see that came for a turning point for Simon's life. I guess one of the, the obvious responses for Simon as a fisherman, as a businessman, he's had a bad night's catch. We don't know if that was just a one-off or if it was just a bad season. But with Jesus there, suddenly there's an abundance, a miraculous catch. It is just astonishing. But Simon's reaction isn't, Hey, Jesus, you're really good for my business. If you just stick around and do this thing for me all the time, I can kind of clean up on this fishing business by the side of Galilee. We can set up our own trawling fishing fleet. We can go into business, Jesus, you and me together. That's not Simon's response. It's not, Jesus, you fit into my agenda. It's not how the dynamic works. Nor is it in Simon's experience of, of rejecting Jesus. You know, I mean, there's something quite astonishing about this story as you think about it. Here comes Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, his background in carpentry, and starts to speak to the fishermen about fish. Simon could have said, stay with your wood and your hammers. You've nothing to say, nothing to do. You don't relate to my life in any way. Just back off. My life's fine. I'll just carry on. That's not his response. The reason I say those is that, that so often that can be our response. Either Jesus, back off you. I don't want you to be part of this. What do you know? Or come into my life, Jesus, but really it's still on my terms. You help me. You're my trump card, my magic bullet, but entirely at my terms. Simon doesn't begrudge 
You know, I guess there's, there's quite a force to that moment. Jesus says to Simon, come on, Simon, can I go in your boat? Crowds are here. There's kind of a lot of peer pressure, isn't there? If Jesus was there and, and said, can I get in your boat? And there's loads of people watching. It's quite a big thing to say, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> no. But he could have said, yeah, I, I don't really want to, but I'll go through the motions because I'm being watched. Everyone's noticing. But his heart's not really in it. We can go through pretense. It's perhaps not so culturally appropriate now, but, but it's still sometimes people are around Christians, around church for pretense, to be seen, to, just because that's what we do. Not Simon. There comes this moment where we see in Peter's response, astonishingly, that he casts his nets. He does let down the nets. He does make this preparation. He, he, he does it, and, and just remember that, that it's, it's uh, kind of hard work to do that. He's been cleaning them. He's been preparing. It's, the, it's not uh, uh, catching these fish wasn't automatic. They just didn't put out in the boat, and they all leapt in. And that would have been an even more amazing miracle. There's hundreds of fish just leaping in the boat. No. For Peter, for Simon, uh, they'd been out the night before. They'd prepared for it. They'd gone out. They'd worked hard all the night. They'd, they, they needed to go out. He'd got the team of people, his, uh, his colleagues, large nets. Others involved. And Jesus says, let down your nets again. The fact that Peter was willing to, willing to cast his nets, even if he wasn't expecting the outcome. But he responds to Jesus. He responds to the word of Jesus. That's really important. That Simon, when Jesus speaks in this revelatory moment, this turning point in his life, Jesus speaks and Simon acts. He doesn't know the outcome. He just begins to respond. His experience as the fisherman He's learned history. He's, he's learning the trade from his dad and probably his grandpa as well. They've learned knowledge. They've done this before. You don't put the nets down in the daytime. It doesn't work. There's no chance of a successful catch. But Jesus, uh, Simon does as Jesus asks. There's something really critical here. Particularly as we, as we prepare for this event called Turning Point. There's something really critical. that Whether we've tried things before, tried an invitation, tried to uh, talk to someone about Jesus, and it's not happened before, and we kind of think it's the wrong season, the wrong context. We're asking and trusting that Jesus said, prepare for 18 months. This is a time of opportunity to just give it a go. To take Jesus as his word because he is the one who loves to reveal himself again and again. And, and maybe we've tried in other seasons and it's just caught nothing and nothing and nothing. But for Simon, he said, okay, I'll do it. It involved his willing choice to go with it.
The nets were filled, the boats began to sink, and Peter bows down. He bows before Jesus. He kind of says, get a, you know, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Go away from me. Why did Peter respond like that? Why did he move from just seeing the flapping fish to recognizing in whose presence he was? He's probably aware that this was the religious teacher and something astonishing had happened and thought, it's too much for me. And bowed, but he got it right in this way. He got it right because he realized that it wasn't in his own ability, but actually he was responding to the grace of God. What do I mean? He, he, he recognized that what had happened wasn't anything of his own doing. He recognized in of himself he might have been faithless. He might have just kind of begrudgingly put out the boat. He may have thought, what's the point of all this? And suddenly this miraculous catch, and he realizes the source of that. And he thinks, I'm either going to get judged now, or I, I, this, I'm standing in the company of greatness. Go away. What he comes to see is that Jesus has come to call him. Not to stay on the sidelines, not to be passed over, not to think I'm worthless and beyond and have nothing to offer. Quite the contrary. And thirdly, finally, the response of the following, of the leaving, of that desire to be with Jesus. Along with his friends, they they get up and they follow. That Jesus is at work on that day by that lake and a turning point happens. And we see in Simon's story and and becoming Peter and, and what that day meant. He didn't know the outcome, but it was that moment. For me, in November 1991, I didn't know where that was going to lead, but I turned to him and began a new journey. That may be the story of a visitor or guest or someone who's here, and you need to turn to Jesus to say, I will follow you. I will listen to your word, and I will do it. I'll follow or it may be just that encouragement for us as we, as we kind of gear up for what's coming up in, in the end of this month and with, with Easter and the, the 50th Alpha. It may be just that reminder to, to, to hear that Jesus says, I will make you fishes of people. That it doesn't necessarily, all of us need to, to leave our homes and families and jobs and careers. Pete, Paul stayed a tent maker and, uh, and the, the, the man that Jesus encountered, I preached on this a few weeks ago, at the other side of the lake, Jesus said, no, stay here and be my witness where you live and where you are. But still that, that great banner of that calling, he's going to make us all fishers of people. In the Matthew's gospel, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's who we Ah, people who say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, we will walk with him. And the mandate to be fishers of people. In these weeks and months coming up, 
as Phil preached about it a few weeks ago, he said, we've got a great mission team, and we're privileged to have three of them coming to us, but we are the mission team. We are the people who have encountered Jesus and had that turning point in our own life. If you don't know it, haven't got one, maybe today's the day. Why delay? But for us as his people who've responded like Simon to say, Jesus, we will go where you want. We'll put down the net again because we trust that what you are saying is to make fishes of people. Bring to Jesus a wonderful, wonderful, precious harvest. See, the difference between the story is the fish got gutted and flayed and eaten. But Jesus brings people into life, into his presence, into a way of living that's stretches on always. Let's pray together.